Well, it's our privilege to continue on in our study of Hebrews chapter 7. So if you would take your copy of God's Word, turn there with me as we enter into this wonderful letter again. You may remember in 2019, media outlets were abuzz reporting a college admission scandal that involved several famous and prominent figures in our society, actors and actresses, CEOs and A host of wealthy individuals were caught illegally buying their children's acceptance into prominent universities. Many of those parents found themselves spending time behind bars for their participation in this scandal, and in many cases, their children were kept completely in the dark and had no idea and thought they were received into their chosen school by merit. So the exposure of their parents' crime brought not only legal consequences and the scorn of society, but the embarrassment and shame of their kids. But the question remains, why? Why would these wealthy and powerful individuals take the risk of paying for their children to enter university illegally? And the answer to that question is the fact that they were confident that their children did not have the necessary credentials to be accepted on merit. The academic requirements for acceptance into many major universities are simply out of reach for the average student. They're certainly impossible for below average students. And the academic requirements for Ivy League schools are only achievable by the most elite high school students. As a test case, I did a basic Google search this week, you can do it on your phone, and ask, what are the credentials for acceptance into Harvard University? What I found is that a student desiring to attend Harvard should expect to have a minimum uh, score of 1580 on the SAT and 35 on the ACT, and they, in addition, should have a GPA of 4.18 or above to be considered for acceptance. Now, to reveal just how unrealistic my hopes are of going to Harvard, I'm still trying to figure out how you have a a grade point average above four. When when I was in school, that was a perfect score, so apparently things have changed. Now you have to be better than perfect. And so we see why these wealthy parents thought, you know, I I, I probably better throw in something on the side if I want to make sure my kid gets into the school they really want to go to. Their children simply didn't have the credentials necessary to attend the university of their choice. But it turns out that entry into university is not the only endeavor that requires you to meet certain credentials. The scriptures reveal that those who desire to be citizens of heaven, those who desire to be in the kingdom of Christ, will be required to possess one crucial credential. And that credential is perfection. Perfect, sinless holiness is the non-negotiable credential for anyone who wants to enter God's heaven. And though we as human beings try to fight it and, and redefine it or ignore it, the, in the secret recesses of our own conscience, we all know that we do not measure up to the righteous credential of holiness that God requires. But this morning, the author of Hebrews is going to give us some great news. And that is the fact that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have great hope. Because of his ministry as our great high priest, we have hope of drawing near to God the Father. 
Remember, we are in this wonderful letter, the theme of which is the superiority of Christ, and we've been looking for some time now at the superiority of Christ's priesthood. His, his priesthood is superior to that of Aaron of, and of the Levites. We're in chapter 7 now, which is the fourth component of this larger section. Recently, in chapter 7, we've seen the historical significance of Melchizedek. We've seen the spiritual significance of Melchizedek, this, this Old Testament figure who pointed forward to Christ. Last week, we were admonished to observe the greatness of Melchizedek. And as we said then, we did that because the greater Melchizedek is in our minds, the greater Christ should be in our minds because he points forward to Christ. And there was this comparison last week, of course, between Melchizedek and the, the Levites. We saw that Melchizedek was greater because he received tithes based on his superior status, where the Levites received tithes simply because it was commanded by God. We also saw that his priesthood is superior because it's permanent, it's forever. And we saw that he received tithes even from Levi because he received tithes from Abraham, Levi's great-great-grandfather. Now, those arguments pr prove to us undeniably that Melchizedek, and therefore Christ, is truly greater than Abraham and the Levitical priesthood. But all of that stands in the background of what we'll study this morning, because today the author wants us to answer a question. And it may be a question that you've had as we've studied this passage, and that is, why was it necessary to have another priest come in why was it necessary to remove the old priesthood and to bring in a new? Or another way of looking at it is, what was inadequate about the Levitical priesthood that required a replacement, a new priest? And we're going to look at that today. Our passage today is Hebrews 7, verses 11 to 19. Hebrews 7, 11 to 19. Let's read this together. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood... For on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it's attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We're continuing in this theme that really ties this chapter together, and that is that the eternal assurance of our faith rests on the eternal priesthood of Christ, and we'll see that brought out again even in these verses today. The author begins here with a conditional statement, it's, but it's a statement made in the form of a question. You remember a conditional statement is an if-then statement. If this is true, then this must be true. 
And that's exactly what we have here. Here's the argument. Christ's priesthood reveals the law's inadequacy. Verse 11. This, this is really the argument that he's making. Christ's priesthood reveals the law's inadequacy. Look back at verse 11. Now, this is the if portion of the statement. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. This is the the if. We'll get to the then in a moment. But what I want you to notice here is the author is going to be addressing throughout these verses the issue of perfection. Perfection. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, he says. By perfection here, he's referring to our need for perfect righteousness in order to draw near to God. We know that because of what we'll see in verse 19. We'll save that till the end, but he's going to mention this again and tie it all together in verse 19. But this brings up a really crucial theological truth that we have to understand before we dive in any further into this text, and that is because God is perfect in holiness, perfect holiness is required of anyone who desires to approach him. You cannot enter God's presence, period, if you are not perfectly holy. This is the great conundrum that humanity has faced since the fall. Though we desperately need reconciliation with God, and we long for fellowship and, 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 and a relationship with Him, because of both the sins of our original parents and our own personal sins, we find ourselves not having the necessary credential to be reconciled to God, which is perfect holiness. The law made this clear, Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You remember Moses, who was said to be by God the most humble man on the face of the planet. Moses wanted to see God's glory. And how does God respond to him? Exodus 33.18-20. Then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Apart from perfect holiness, we simply cannot look on the face of God. We cannot behold his perfect glory. And so, then, the requirement for reconciliation is perfection. And the author's point here is to highlight the fact that the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law itself was not able to bring the perfection that people needed in order to truly draw near to God in the way God intended. That's why he begins, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, And he says, for on the basis of it, that is, on the basis of the priesthood, the people received the law. Now, what he's going to do here is tie together the priesthood and the Mosaic law itself. And the reason for that is simply because the two go hand in hand. You cannot have the Mosaic law without a functioning Levitical priesthood. It just simply can't happen. And the reason for that is because the priest, remember, are constantly carrying out the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system goes with the Mosaic Covenant because the people can't keep it, right? 
The people fail to keep the law, and so the only way you can remain under the Mosaic law is if you have this functioning priesthood that's daily, day in, day out, making sacrifices for sin, because no sooner have they made a sacrifice for yesterday's sin, but we're adding more sins that need a new sacrifice. And that's why he's tying the two together. You cannot have the law without a priesthood. They go together. And the Levitical priestly system was designed to communicate that God is infinitely holy and we are not. I mean, at its basis, when you read Leviticus, the theme of Leviticus is holiness. And, and, and we see this, the law, and you, if you've read it before, you know that God is very clear down to, to painstaking detail of you shall do this and you shall not do this. Why? Because you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so what we see is the holiness, the majesty of God, and the sinfulness of man when we look at the law. So that is the if portion of the conditional question. If perfection came through the law and the priesthood, then, here's the second portion, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? You get the question. If this worked, if we became perfect through the law, then what was the point? Why do we need this other priest to enter in? And what the author's doing here is actually making a brilliant argument based again on this one verse. This whole thing has been built on the verse from Psalm 110, verse 4, that hopefully you have memorized by now. We've, we've said it over and over again. If you think I've been long-winded in this section of Hebrews, he's the one that's talking about one single verse, okay? I'm just following the inspired author here. Psalm 110.4 again says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All of this centers on this one text. And understand that the, the, the argument the author is about to make, he's got to be very, very careful. He's got to nail this argument, and he can't nail the argument based on his own clever illustrations or his own clever ideas. He's got to prove it from the Scripture, because what he's saying here is truly mind-blowing. He's implying that there were not only inadequacies in the Levitical priesthood, but there were inadequacies, he says, with the Mosaic law itself. Now, that's a bold statement at any time, but especially when you're talking to, to Jewish people. These are Jewish Christians. To a Jew, this would have been just cover your ears blasphemy to a Jewish Christian who, who actually would believe this is true, but also there's this uneasiness when you start talking this way about the imperfection of the law. After all, remember, we're not talking about a law that was man-made. God gave this law to Moses. He gave it with a, a, a fantastic display, a miraculous display on Mount Sinai to which it was, no one could argue that, okay, these, these came from God. There's no other way to explain this. And so this is not a law that the Jews made up. We're talking about words that came from God himself. So if the author's going to say there were inadequacies in that law and in that priesthood, he better make sure that he's going to say that from the Scriptures. But what I want to assure you of is that's exactly what he's doing. He's proving it from this one simple verse. And here's the argument. His point is that God himself affirmed 
with this verse in Psalm 110, that the law was always intended to be temporary, and that, there, that he had another plan that was coming after the law, that there was another priest who was coming. Remember, Psalm 110 is written by David. Think back to your Bible history now. Were the people of Israel under the law or outside the law during the time of David? Under the law. I mean, right smack in the middle, really. This is sort of the height of Israel's history. When David writes Psalm 110, verse 4, the law is fully functional, the priesthood is fully functional, and yet in the midst of that environment, David is inspired to say, there's another priest coming from a completely different order. Not under this law, not under this priesthood. And the, the introductory words of Psalm 110.4, notice there, what does it say? What are the first two words of that verse? The Lord has sworn. What he said, the, this was God's idea. God is the one who said there were inadequacies in the Levitical priesthood and there were inadequacies in the Mosaic law itself that God intended to be there because God intended all along to send a greater priest. God is the one who has said this. So the text of Hebrews now is calling us to understand that with this declaration, with God saying what he says here in Psalm 110, he proves that it was his intention for this law and this priesthood to be temporary, and it was never the purpose of the law to provide perfection for God's people. It was not through works of the law that they ultimately would be saved. Understand that's always been God's plan. God has always had one plan of redemption for all people of all time. The Jews weren't saved by keeping the law, and then he came up with another idea for Gentiles. Everyone is saved by the promised Son who would come and redeem us from our sins. So what was the purpose of the law then? We don't have a ton of time, but if you were here for Galatians, a Galatians study, you went through this. Let me just remind you from Galatians chapter 3, what was the purpose of the law? Paul tells us, verse 21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. What Paul reveals here is that the law of God was never antithetical to the promises of salvation by faith in Christ alone. Instead, the purpose of the law has always been to highlight our need for salvation, to show us our condemnation, that we, we, our sin is ugly and it deserves the punishment of God, and that we need a perfect sacrifice in our place to pay for our sins. That was the point of the law. And so with this dramatic statement... He's now going to back it up with some evidence. If you're going to say something like this in verse 11, then you, you need to give some supporting evidence. And so he's really going to answer this question. How do we know that Christ's priesthood definitively reveals the inadequacy of the law? How do we know that? Well, here's the evidence. 
verses 12 to 17 give us this evidence that Christ's priesthood necessitates the law's removal. Christ's priesthood necessitates the law's removal. Look back at the the text here in verse 12. He says, For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Now this statement's meant to be explanatory. It's, It's giving evidence for what he just said in verse 11 about the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law. It, it's impossible to have one without the other, as we explained earlier. They go hand in glove. The sacrificial system requires a priesthood to administer that system, so if there's going to be a change of priesthood, then that indicates there's also going to be a change of law. And the evidence here for this is primarily two things. He's going to give two proofs. They're pretty obvious proofs about Christ. We've, we've already touched on them in some ways, but he's going to help walk through the thought process here of why he's saying if you have a new priest, you've got to have a new law. Proof number one we'll call Christ's heritage. Christ's heritage is proof of this fact, verses 13 to 14. He says, For the one concerning whom these things are spoken, that is Jesus, belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever officiated at the altar. For it's evident that the Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. What he's saying here is that the prophecy in Psalm 110 verse 4 that David wrote was a prophecy about the Messiah. And of course, by this time that Hebrews is being written, we know Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And it's also been clearly proven that Jesus did not come from the tribe of Levi. The Levites, of course, were the only tribe allowed to minister before the altar of the Lord. And not only that, but remember, the law dictated that if anyone else tried to approach the altar to minister in the place of the Levites that was from another tribe, the penalty for that was death. Remember Numbers 3.10? He says, So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood, but the layman who comes near shall be put to death. So now we have a big problem here. With the introduction of a new priest in Psalm 110, and this provision here, this command that says if anybody outside of this tribe tries to minister, they're going to be killed, we have to reconcile these things. If we have this new priest that rises up, and the, the very first moment that he tries to minister on behalf of the people, he's going to have to be executed. And we know this beyond a shadow of a doubt because we know what tribe Christ came from. We knew what tribe Christ was going to come from before he was ever born. It's been, every, every Jew knows what tribe is he going to come from. Of course, it's going to come from Judah. And that's why he says, for it is evident, that is, everybody knows, that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Judah, of course, was the tribe of kings, not the tribe of priests. We see this all the way back in Micah 5, 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Isaiah 11, 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, that is, he'll be from the line of David, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Not to mention New Testament, both Matthew and Luke, give the genealogy for Christ, both of them clearly show, both from on his mother's side and his father's adopted father's side, he comes from the line of Judah. 
So, both Jews and Christians understand that the Messiah would be born through the tribe of Judah and not the tribe of Levi, and the point then is obvious. When God prophesied that the Messiah would come as a priest, he was also insinuating that the Messiah would bring about the end of the law and usher in a new covenant. That with the coming of a new priest would come a new covenant, a new law. This is clear not only by Christ's heritage, but by Christ's credentials. This is a second proof that he gives here. Stay with me as all of this wraps up here in a moment in verse 19, and the significance of this comes together. But he gives a second proof here. He says, and this is clearer still, that is, it's that the law has to be changed if a priesthood is changed. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Now, here again, he's drawing on Psalm 110, verse 4, and this verse declares that we're to be anticipating one who's coming that has a a certain credential. He meets a certain criteria that nobody else meets, and that is he has an indestructible life or an eternal life. He is eternal. Now, that that doesn't just happen for anyone. This is going to be the the Messiah. In fact, that word arise, when he says here, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, that's a verb that's used often in prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, that when he rises up or when he will arise. We see it in like Malachi 4, 1 and 2, Verse 2 there, it says, The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. It's a reference to the coming of Messiah. Numbers 24, 17, towards the middle of that verse, it says, A scepter shall rise from Israel. It's the same uh, verb, root, used there. Peter uses the same verb in 2 Peter 1, 19. It says, Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The morning star is Jesus Christ. We see that in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. So when he says here, it, it's clear if another priest arises from the order of Melchizedek, it's likely a reference to the fact that this is not just some ordinary priest. This is the Messiah himself, and therefore it will be clear that he is the man, the one that meets this criteria, because he has an indestructible life. Now, how do we know that Jesus Christ has an indestructible life? The resurrection. The resurrection and ascension to the Father. Resurrection proved. He's the guy. He's the guy with the indestructible life. He's the only one, then, that can meet the criteria of Psalm 110.4, which the author quotes again now for us. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever. The emphasis is on forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the point. So in summary, here here are how the two proofs go together to make this argument. The law itself had to be changed when the priesthood changed because this new priest was not from the tribe of Levi and he's proven his worthiness to become a priest because of his indestructible life. That miracle of an indestructible life And the fact that he comes from a different tribe both prove that with the coming of this new priest, there must also be the coming of a new covenant, a new law that he'll talk about in coming verses, that new covenant. 
But you may be wondering, where is this going? I mean, I see the argument. I see that it's here. Uh, it's fascinating, perhaps in and of itself. But what is the, what's the crux of this? Well, that comes to us now in what we'll call the summation. And this is where we'll camp out for a few moments. The summation really is the point, and here is the point. Christ's priesthood provides the sinner perfection. Christ's priesthood provides the sinner perfection. So as the author sums up this important argument, he's going to plainly state what was inadequate in the law and then plainly state what is adequate in Christ himself. And remember, the whole context here is dealing with that of perfection. In what way was the law inadequate in reference to perfection? And in what way is Christ supremely adequate in reference to perfection? So look at verse 18. He begins with the law on the negative side. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Now, this is really strong language, because now he's not only saying that the law was inadequate. Look at the words he used to describe it. Weak and useless. Now, I think it's important that we understand what he is and is not saying here. Let me clarify what he's not saying. The author is not saying that the law of Moses was weak and useless in every way, okay? The law, again, was God-given. The law served the purpose of God perfectly. The law of God, remember, was purposed to reveal our sin and to point us to Christ. And when it comes to that, the law is not useless. The law did its job perfectly. In what way, then, is he saying it was weak and useless? It was weak and useless to provide actual perfection for God's people. The people couldn't be saved by it. They they couldn't do it. They couldn't keep the law. The word useless here means to not be of any advantage. And so when it came to this one credential, which is the key credential, if you want to draw near to God for all eternity, you better be perfect. The law was useless when it came to that. It It was... of no advantage to providing real perfection. And remember, the reason for that, we need to be clear about this too, the reason the law was unable to provide perfection has nothing to do with the standards of the law. The standards of the law were based on the character of God. It's a true picture of what God sees as holiness, a righteous life. The reason that it was flawed is because we are flawed. We couldn't keep it. Nobody could do those righteous standards. The, moral, the, moral, the morality of God's law is true holiness. And so, theoretically then, if a person could literally keep every aspect of the law without perfection every single moment of their day until their death, theoretically then, they could be saved by the law. But God knew from the beginning, we can't keep the law for a moment, let alone for a lifetime. And so God was, was clear from the beginning that the point of the law would be to produce condemnation for every person who lived under the law, except for one. Except for one. And that brings us to the good news. That brings us to the mountaintop, the climactic moment of this passage. And it's this. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Let me read that again. On the other hand, There is a bringing in of a better hope 
through which we draw near to God. The priesthood which administered the law of God could only ever bring about condemnation and despair because it was never truly sufficient to deal with sin at its root. But with the coming of Christ, we find new hope. And this hope is a hope by which we can draw near to God. That's language that describes salvation, reconciliation, gaining this credential of, of righteousness, of perfection. That is the meaning of hope. Hope here in context must be a reference to the fact that what the law failed to do, Christ did to the uttermost. Christ was perfectly adequate where the law was inadequate. And the reason for that is because Christ purchased the perfection that is required for us to draw near to God by fulfilling the law down to the last letter. Listen to this in Matthew 5, 17, as Jesus talks about the law. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now think about that. I didn't come, Jesus said, to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill it. You understand the significance of that statement? This is important. You know, when Jesus came in his earthly ministry, he didn't say, okay, hey, everyone, I'm Jesus, I'm the Son of God, and uh, the Father, Spirit, and I have a new plan, new covenant, so we're just going to take that old one, the law, you just forget about that, uh, we're going to do something new. That's not what he did. He didn't do that because the law can't just be set aside. You can't just cast it aside like, you know, like a grandfather overlooking the transgressions of his grandson. You can't do that. The law could not be set aside. It had to be accomplished. Somebody had to do it. And they had to do it down to the letter, to the last word. Someone had to perfectly fulfill the law. And that's why Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to do it, to fulfill it. So Jesus accomplishes the law. He fulfills the law, meaning that he came to live underneath the law every moment of every day for all of his life, never sinning, never slipping up for even a moment. And then after having lived out that perfect life, fulfilling the law, he turns around and offers his perfect life as a sacrifice to the Father to pay for the sins of his people. He became the perfect sacrifice that the sacrificial system pointed to all those years. Then on the third day, he rises from the grave, which is the affirmation of the Father that he's accepted his sacrifice, but also the credential of being this priest, that he has an indestructible life. And this is not a sacrifice then that he would have to repeat day in and day out, every morning and every evening, as if it were an animal sacrifice. No, this is a one-time sacrifice, an effectual sacrifice that truly, finally dealt a death blow to sin. So while the law produced only condemnation for mankind, Christ secured lasting reconciliation, that you might be drawn near to God. And that's what's meant by this statement that in Christ comes a better hope. A better hope. For us as sinful people to draw near means that the perfection that Christ secured must be applied to us by grace through faith. 
so that we are able to draw near to the Father, not by our perfection, but by His. This is the good news of the gospel. The whole gospel rises or falls on this issue of perfection. We must be perfect. But here we see it's not a perfection of our own that's needed. It's a perfection of Christ. We see this good news all over the place in the New Testament. Let me just mention two other places. Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Look at that. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Of course, the classic place where we see this this double imputation is 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, He made Him, God the Father made the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is the gospel. This is the good news, the better hope. The gospel begins exactly where we began this morning, and that is the issue of perfection. We need perfection. We must be holy to, to enter heaven, to be reconciled to God, but we are not. We've sinned against a holy God. We're guilty before God, deserving the wrath of God for our sin. But the gospel is such good news, such a better hope, because God provided in His Son what we could not earn on our own merit. Jesus Christ came not only to die in our place, but to live in our place. You understand that Jesus is your substitute? If you're a Christian, He's your substitute not only in death, but in life. He accomplished perfection in His humanity, and by His death and resurrection, those who have faith in Him, who repent of their sins and turn to Him in faith, they receive that righteousness. This is the amazing truth of the gospel. You know, you hear the word justification, and some would define that as just as if I never sinned. That's only half of what that word means. Because what that word means is, it's not only as if God looks at you just as if you never sinned. He looks at you just as if you live Christ's perfect life because it's been applied to you. Now, that's a better hope. Amen? That's a better hope than, than a law written for us that says, you keep this, you better do this because if you slip up, it's done. One time, just one infraction, and you're done. All hope gone. This is a better hope that you couldn't do it And so Christ did it for you. This is the gospel. 
If you're here this morning and you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the good news of the gospel, that if you will turn from your sin in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he did what you could not and died in your place to pay for the wrath of God for your sin and rose again from the grave, the Bible says all who believe that gospel and put their faith in Christ will be saved. That the righteousness that Christ purchased in his life and death will be applied to you by faith. That is the hope of the gospel. And that is why the author says here, in Christ, we have a better hope, and that hope allows us to draw near. I love that phrase, bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Everything about the Levitical system and the law said, God is holy, you are not, and you can't come close. Stay back. Only the priest can come close. Only one of them can actually go into the most holy place, and he can only go once a year. Everybody else, stay back and look on, because you're not worthy to be near God. But Christ came. He was worthy. And through him, we can draw near to God. We'll see the face of God one day for those who are in Christ because we're welcomed there based on the righteousness of his son. This is a better hope. But I want to step back for a moment and remember the urgent reason that the author of Hebrews is making this argument in the first place. Remember the context. We've talked about it several times. You have a group of Jewish Christians who have become lethargic in their faith for one reason or another, and they're actually beginning to look back at Judaism, the Levitical system, the law. They're looking back at that with longing eyes. Something about the trouble of their circumstances making them waver, and they're looking back at their former life of Judaism. And it's as if the author is saying, what are you doing? Wake up! <laughs> Wake up! What did the law give you but condemnation? It's only in Christ that you have this hope of salvation by which you can draw near to the living God. And there's something instructive for us this morning as well as we think about this in context. Understand that every human being on the planet, believer or unbeliever, is painfully aware of the fact that perfection is what God requires and we fall woefully short. God has put within each human being a conscience and though that conscience has been truly and dramatically affected by the fall, it is still there in the existence of the heart of every man, woman, and child. And every person longs to silence the convicting voice of that conscience. Now let's talk first of all about unbelievers, and then we'll talk about believers. How do unbelievers go about trying to silence that screaming conscience? Well, they're two broad categories. The first one, attempt number one, we'll call rebellious denial. Rebellious denial. Some just try to, to rebel against it and deny that it's there. This is how we come up with things like atheism and hedonism. These are forms of rebellious denial. This is the reason that the atheist claims not to believe in God on the one hand and to hate him on the other hand. If you don't believe in him, what are you doing hating him? That's because every time they try to quiet their guilty conscience by saying to themselves, he's not real, he's not real, he's not real, it only inflames their guilty conscience all the more. And so they grow angry. 
Hedonism, we've talked about before, this is the, it's a philosophical term. It's, it's a way of living life where the goal is personal pleasure. The point of life is to please myself, hedonism says. This is the philosophical climate of the world in which we live. Have you ever wondered why the moral progressives of our day are never satisfied until their perspective on morality is not only accepted but celebrated? Why do they push so hard for it to be celebrated by the culture? Well, it's because behind the veneer of their supposed pride over their sinful lifestyle is a deepening inner sense of shame and guilt. And the hope is that if I could just get society not only to accept me this way, but to celebrate me in this way, then maybe, just maybe, that conscience in my heart will go away. But it doesn't work. Other unbelievers take the exact opposite approach. Instead of denying these things, they, they go to the other extreme. Attempt number two we'll call righteous works. As it turns out, the Mosaic law is not the only form of works righteousness that sinful men try to pursue to earn their way to God. There are other forms of false Christianity, for example, that offer promises of earning righteousness. Catholicism offers the, the Catholic Mass, which is essentially a Christianized version of the Levitical sacrificial system. The Catholic Mass is an abomination that claims to re-sacrifice Christ over and over again for a fresh forgiveness of sins. This is blasphemy. The people are buying it by the millions across the globe. Others turn to cults uh, uh, such as, as Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness in, in which they claim to have the right view of Christ and the right scriptures, but all it is is a, a false Christ and a false gospel that heaps condemnation on people, a works-based system that they can't keep. Others turn completely away from Christianized versions of religion to pagan idolatry only to find that all of those are works-based systems as well that just heap condemnation on people. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, you pick your false religion, they all boil down to you have to do it. You have to be good enough. And so they all end in the same place of destruction. The author of Hebrews is calling everyone to the true gospel. Say, so don't be deceived by any attempt at your own self-righteousness. The only better hope we have is Christ Jesus, who has lived the perfect life that you failed to live and offers it to you by grace through faith in him. But what about believers? You know, as believers in Christ, hopefully... We're not attempted ever to truly abandon Christ, not in the truest sense, and, and not to chase after hedonism in its truest definition. But I think the primary application for us comes in our efforts at sanctification. You know, we can all be tempted towards the Christianized versions of those worldly categories, which are legalism and license. Legalism is the attempt to earn God's favor by adding our own standard of righteousness to his. This is the definition by Alan Cairns, which I think is helpful. Legalism is the Galatian error of preaching faith plus something else to make one acceptable to God. At its worst, this form of legalism degenerates into salvation by works. At best, it removes the solid basis of Christian assurance for it drives a sincere believer more and more into himself 
to examine the quality of his work or his faith rather than to the all-sufficient merits of Christ. License is on the other end of the spectrum, so legalism is adding works to God's law, to God's word, to gain his favor. License, the other word for license, the more technical term, is antinomianism. Antinomianism is the dangerous teaching that because we're saved by grace and no longer under the law, just live how you want and don't worry about the consequences because, hey, it's all forgiven anyway. This is Alan Cairn's definition of antinomianism. The Greek anti or anti against it means against, namos means law, a term that literally means against the law. It's the title given to those who hold that two things. When Scripture says that believers are not under law but under grace, it means that the moral law is not binding upon believers in any sense, even in the sense of a rule of life. And or secondly, they believe, a believer may sin with impunity because the grace of God superabounds over his sin. What I want us to see here this morning as we seek to apply the truths that are being given to us in this passage is that at the base level, what he's calling us to do is to take our eyes and put them firmly on Christ and not be deceived into putting our eyes on any other thing that will help us be righteous on our own merit. This is essentially what the the Jews are doing. They're looking back to Judaism, perhaps tempted to maybe add back in some of the works of the law into their expression of Christianity. But what I want you to see is that as we pursue sanctification, as we pursue growth in Christ, we will be tempted towards perhaps either legalism or antinomianism. Depending on your bent, you're probably tempted one way more than the other. And when times get tough and your faith gets rocky and maybe you're lacking assurance, you may dive into either the ditch of legalism or the ditch on the other side of antinomianism, but understand that both of those are just expressions of prideful attempts at self-righteousness. Both of them. Because essentially... The legalist is saying, on the one hand, pridefully, if God says holiness is this, I'm going to be extra holy. I'm going to go above and beyond what God says. The antinomian says, listen, I have such confidence in the grace of God. I'm so mature in my faith and my understanding of God's grace that I can live how I want. Both of those come from pride. Both of them are their own form of self-righteousness. And at the end of the day, if you go down either path, what you end up with is a lack of assurance, a a, a shaky faith, and turning your eyes to yourself instead of Christ. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is turn your eyes to Christ. Marvel at Christ Christ. Christ and Christ alone is the foundation of our hope. Think of it this way. If the law that God gave to Moses did not produce perfection in the people who sought to live by it, why in the world would we think that our own made-up law would produce perfection? It's nonsense. These Jewish Christians needed to take their eyes off of their former life of Judaism and put them firmly back on Christ. And perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you're in the midst of some trial or difficulty and it's got you searching and looking for assurance and you're trying it your own way. And what the author says here is you already have it in the person of Christ. He is the better hope. 
fix your eyes on him. And so as we close, let me just quickly mention three words of personal application that we might take this and live it out. Number one, let me encourage you to anchor your assurance in Christ alone. Anchor your assurance in Christ alone. Let me ask you, when you search for assurance of your salvation, do you find that you look first at yourself or first at Christ? Let me just say it is true that the Holy Spirit produces good fruit in the life of the Christian, and that that good fruit encourages us. It adds to our assurance that God's doing a work in us that he will complete, and that is biblical and it's right. But understand the foundation of our assurance is not even our outward fruit. The foundation of our assurance is what Christ has done. That is the starting place. And even when we look to our spiritual fruit, we look to it through the lens of what Christ is doing in and through us, not at our fruit apart from Christ. If you're lacking assurance this morning and your faith is shaky, turn your eyes first to the perfection of Christ and remember that your only hope is to cling to that because even our best fruit is flawed. The only reason we will be accepted into God's heaven is because of his Son. So anchor your assurance there. Secondly, rejoice in the hope Christ secured. Rejoice in it. After having thought about these truths and anchoring your assurance in Christ, rejoice in it. Let me ask you, are you beaten down and heavy laden? How long has it been since you have truly, genuinely rejoiced in prayer to God, giving thanks to God for the hope you have in Christ? Rejoice in it. This should affect our singing. It should affect our our, our living. It should affect our fellowship as we rejoice and verbally give thanks to God and speak of the glories of Christ and what he's done for us. Rejoice in it. And finally, draw near to God through Christ. Draw near to God through Christ. If what Christ has purchased for us through this hope is our nearness to God, then what in the world are we doing not taking advantage of that gift? Drawing near to God in prayer. Drawing near to God in his word. Drawing near to God by surrounding ourselves with the people of God. Worshiping with the people of God. Using the means that God has given to draw near to him. One day it's true we will realize the fullest sense of this term to draw near to God and we will see him face to face but until then may we take advantage of the gift that's been given to us through his son to draw near in the ways he's given us in this temporal life and may we remember yet again that the eternal assurance of our faith rests on the eternal priesthood of Christ let's pray together Lord Jesus, these are profound truths. They're so rich. How good it is to know that our faith rests on solid ground because it doesn't rest in what we've done. It doesn't rest in what we will do. It rests in what Christ has done, what he's already accomplished for us. Forgive us for so often getting sidetracked by ourselves and getting our our eyes only on ourselves, only on our circumstances. Help us, Lord, to be reminded this morning that our hope centers on the person of Christ. And may we turn our attention to him and leave it there. 
and find our assurance in him and not any addition to that by our own efforts. Thank you for your grace, for your redemption and salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.